It starts here, when church becomes so much more than four walls for a new family, when it becomes a community, a village that surrounds them and says yes to walking with them and encouraging them towards God. It happens that very first time parents drop their little one off. They're learning it's okay to let them go, and that little baby is learning what it is to be held and loved by someone else. It's something so simple as making eye contact and calling a child by name. They're seeing that they're known, recognized, and valued. Every Sunday, we get to be a part of making church feel like a second home for kids. Sometimes that looks like trikes, donuts, and bounce houses. It also looks like games, activities, and songs. And when we step into their lives, we're giving them the first impressions of what God is like. Then, in the blink of an eye, they're teenagers, young adults trying to navigate a world their own way, full of discovery, challenge, trying to decide what identity is truly theirs. We see them come in every week, sometimes alone, sometimes with friends, sometimes excited, sometimes timid, sometimes down, and we surround them. It might just look like games, but what's happening is this generation seeing the generation in front of them engaged in their lives, affirming their worth. It happens when there's a breakup or trouble at home, when different pressures weigh a kid down and lead them to a decision they wish they could undo, and they text a leader, can we hang out? Those conversations are where these kids get to hear again that God loves them like crazy and wants to be in relationship with them. And those opportunities only come when year after year, kids are surrounded by a community, a church that is committed to helping them know the love of Jesus, holding on to hope that one day they would know God like we've gotten to know Him and they will make a decision to follow Him. It's endless praying, constant investment, showing up in big ways and in small ways, and knowing that this is worth it and this is working. And it all starts here. Well, as Bill already, um, you know, spoiler alert, this is my first time preaching. So I decided that if I forget everything, we'll just dance the Cupid Shuffle. So to the left, to the left, that's all I know. So, um, <laughs> um, but I'm so excited to be here with you today and feel so honored to get to share with you. Um, Bill mentioned this, but for the past couple weeks, we have been talking about six words. And these six words are for the good of our city. And we've been unpacking this. These are the words that we've put around that reflect the heartbeat of ascent and who we want to be as a people and as a community. And being for the good of our city actually propels us forward into living a life that really reflects Jesus and in a life that Jesus has not only invited us into, but as Jesus followers, he's commanded us to live, to show this limitless love to the people around us. And actually, when we get to know this limitless love for ourselves in a personal way, we cannot help but be for the good of our city and for those of around us. And we have been talking about that we want to be a church that people would say they would miss us if we were no longer here. So today we're going to wrap up this series, um, but it's our desire, our hope that this vision would not fade away with this series, but that we truly as a community would be marked by it and known for it, that our presence here would be felt, it would, be, it would matter, 
and that we would be missed if we were no longer here. So I want to focus on that phrase, no longer here this morning. And I hate to start our time off together in this way, but I also want to be real with you. At some point, 100% of us in this room will no longer be here. And I don't just mean like no longer in this room, but I mean no longer here. And so I think it would be wise for us to contemplate and consider that sobering statement. And when we do, I would say that most of us, if not all of us, would agree that we want to live a life that matters, a life of greatness. We want to be remembered when we are gone. So what is it that we will leave behind? Will we leave something that outlasts us? Well, it's awards season. And when I think about legacy and greatness, I'm thinking about all of these accolades and accomplishments that people are achieving. And these things have happened just in the past month. First of all, Beyonce broke the record for the most Grammy wins of all time with her 32nd, 32nd Grammy. Viola Davis has been the 18th person ever, only 18 people ever, to win the coveted EGOT status, meaning that she's won an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony. And LeBron James surpassed Kareem Abdul-Jabbar to be the NBA's all-time leading scorer. He has over 38,400 points. All of these people are a definition of greatness. And next Sunday night, we'll tune into the Oscars and we'll see if anyone can join their ranks. But what about the rest of us in the room, right? For those of us that, if we're honest, you know, really honest, we're not Beyonce. What about us? For me, sometimes I just opt out of that question altogether because there's no statue or lifetime achievement award coming my way. But also, if I really dig in and ask myself that question, I do care about living a life that is great. I do want to build something successful, something that lasts. I want to be the best at every opportunity I've been given. And if I take a look inside, I, I really want to receive honor and praise. It's something that's in me. Perhaps for you, it's the same. Or maybe for you, your definition of greatness is reaching the top of your company, gaining industry-wide recognition. Maybe it's adding more zeros to the end of your paycheck. Maybe it's gaining access to places that you've only dreamed. Maybe it's gaining particular relationships or increasing influence. Students, for you, maybe it's being the top of your class. Maybe it is being named the lead on a project or on the stage or on the field. Maybe it's gaining the acceptance by a particular crowd or person. Stu uh, parents, for you, maybe it's your kids finishing first or being named the best. So Ascent, what is it for you? How do you define that? What is your pinnacle of greatness? My husband, Sebastian, has always dreamed of making movies. He had creativity running through his veins and stories filling his head ever since he can remember. And he even wrote his first movie script when he was 12 years old. Eventually, his dream and his focus shifted a little bit to making commercials, which he says are just 30-second films. You tell a story. And when that's your dream, your measure of success 
is an Emmy Award, which is recognition from the Television Academy for outstanding achievement in television. So he went to school, he started putting in the hard work and the dedication, and he received affirmation in his schooling, and that propelled him forward. It drove him more and more to reach that dream. And eventually, it landed him a position to start making commercials. It put him where he wanted to be. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, someday he could be considered for that great measure of success, one that would give him status and recognition. It would elevate him in his career. After 10 years of putting in hard work and creating, he began to work on a project that gained national recognition. And he started thinking, maybe this is my moment. And when he received the Emmy nomination, he felt the whole world was in his hands. He felt like he was on the edge of greatness. And in 2021, that far-off reality became, or far-off dream, I should say, became a reality. Okay, so we're talking about greatness. Do you already see that this thing is gold? <laughs> I mean, it's beautiful, right? And let me just open this up for you, because... She comes in her own little satin case here. So here's the Emmy. Okay, and she also comes with a certificate of authenticity and her very own golden uh, shining cloth because greatness must shine, right? So here she is. That dream became his reality. That year, Sebastian not only won one, but he won two Emmys. And he anticipated what it would do. He anticipated the life change when he reached that, when he was recognized for that greatness. But the thing that he thought would make him great, the thing that he dreamed of ever since he was a young boy, growing up in Colombia, watching the Oscars is where it all started, taking in that pomp and circumstance, the glitz and the glamour, the fame, the achievement, the recognition when that statue was handed over and speeches were delivered. That thing that he thought would make him great didn't. It left him with this feeling of emptiness and loneliness. This trophy was a measure of success, but not of significance. It did not satisfy his desire for greatness in the way that he thought it would. And that night when he came home from the Emmys, he began to realize for the very first time that it didn't come, greatness did not come from making his own name great. It comes from something bigger than ourselves, something that will outlast us, something more than just a piece of furniture. So many of us get caught up in these same beliefs, don't we? And our perspective of greatness is actually lacking. The problem isn't in desiring greatness, no. The desire is, or the problem isn't even in the Emmy or wanting to be the very best at what you do. The problem comes when we start defining greatness in terms of elevating ourselves and our own names. It's when we frame greatness in accolades, recognition, and status. And we're not the only ones who struggle with this. Jesus' disciples actually struggled with the same thing. They had this same lacking perspective. So Matthew tells us in his gospel account, he tells us in chapter 18, at that time, 
the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Here they are asking this exact same question that you and I often ask. They're asking, how do I become great? How do I feel, fulfill that desire within me? How do I get to have the coveted seat next to the king? The one that will increase my power, my status. It will give me position and influence. How do I make a name for myself so that others know that I'm great? Two other gospel writers, Mark and Luke, actually give us the added detail that right before this, the disciples are actually arguing with each other over this. They're measuring themselves up against one another, trying to figure out who is the greatest. They are jockeying for the top position. And then they turn to Jesus and they ask this question. But I want you to pay attention to what it is that Jesus does. He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. So before he says anything, Jesus shows them. And Jesus loves imagery. He uses it all the time. And in this moment, Jesus shows them the very picture of greatness to be a, a child. Let me pause for a second because it's important for us to know and understand that at this time and in this culture, children were seen as property. They had no rights, no status. So what is it that Jesus wanted them to see when this maybe made no sense to them? What is it that Jesus wanted them to see about greatness? If we brought any of these kids back up on stage, what would you see and learn from them about the kingdom of heaven? Perhaps he wanted them to see that in the kingdom of heaven, you don't have to jockey for your position Perhaps even the least, the little, and the marginalized have a place. Maybe instead of striving, performing, and spending energy to prove our worthiness to God and to others, putting great effort toward making our own names great, we should instead spend our energy, our time, our precious and limited time and energy and resources to pay attention to the small, seemingly insignificant ones that we pass by every day. So then Jesus speaks, and in verse 3 he says, and, and he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. I want us to notice that Jesus does not rebuke their desire for greatness. You and I are made in the image of a great God. And we have this innate desire for meaning and purpose to be a part of something great and bigger than ourselves, something that outlasts us. And our desire for that significance, to be a part of something great, it's God-given. That's not the part that gets mixed up. The part that we get mixed up in is how we define it, how we reach it. So Jesus does what Jesus does, and he flips this all on its head. And he says that in the kingdom of heaven, it's not about elevating oneself, but it's about shifting our gaze towards the least of these. 
He says that whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Meaning that how we treat the least of these is directly connected to how we treat and love Christ. It's connected and you cannot separate it. When you love the least, you are loving Jesus. And when you love Jesus, it cannot help but manifest itself into the love of others. Jesus is calling us into an unconditional love for others, much like children do. Whoever welcomes one such child welcomes me. And this kind of welcome that Jesus is referring to means to bring someone into your family with the purpose of bringing them up and educating them in the way of the kingdom. So think about this for a second. When you bring someone into your family, when you welcome them in, you're not merely acknowledging their existence. No, you make them feel seen and known. You get to know them. You get to know their story. You help them to feel comfortable and you give them a place to belong. Now, Jesus could have placed anyone else, brought anyone else before them. There were many in their culture at this time that were considered to be the least, that had no rights or no status. But he didn't. He brought a child and placed a child in front of them. And I think there is significance in that. So let's talk about kids for a minute. Every generation of kids at every stage have always needed to be known and given a place to belong. Adults, you and I, we need belonging too, but we cannot miss the magnitude and importance of belonging for children. Brain development happens the fastest in the first eight years than any other time in a person's life. This is why we say kids are like sponges, because they're literally actually soaking everything in, and important neuropathways are being formed. These are their most formative years because they are literally laying a foundation for everything else. And research shows us that a sense of belonging leads to a, a strong sense of identity. It leads to social, mental, and emotional health, and even a sense of purpose and meaning. So that's why when you walk in the doors of Ascent, you see trikes and bounce houses, because we want kids to know that they are welcome here. We want them to know that they belong. We are building a sense of their belonging with every confetti-filled birthday celebration out there because we are speaking their language of fun. And we're building a sense of belonging through consistent leaders who show up and are present every week, who know their name and make them feel safe. And we are committed to building this sense of belonging. It's our desire that we would help build this because this ultimately leads to influence. And at the end of the day, above all other things, we want kids to know that they too are welcome in the kingdom of God. There's a place for them. Laying a foundation of belief that God loves them, God made them, and Jesus wants to be their friend forever matters because we're paving a way we're laying a foundation, and we are giving them their first impressions of God. We want them to learn that they can trust God no matter what, and that Jesus has shown them the way to love others. So when we show kids the love of Jesus by first giving them a place to belong, and second, by our presence. When I lived in Georgia, 
I served as a small group leader for uh, my church in the elementary environment. And I was a kindergarten small group leader, which meant that I got to show up and lead and love and wrangle a group of five and six-year-olds every Sunday morning. And I loved kindergartners. I think that they're the best because they say the best things. They're super funny. They're very honest. And they're very curious. So one day I'm leading my small group and I have this new little boy join my group. And his name was Ewan which I only knew after he corrected me because I first called him Ewan. So tragic and embarrassing. But Ewan, as a kindergartner does, he's pretty forgiving. So he forgave me and we moved on quickly as kindergartners do. Uh, We're sitting there in our small group and a few minutes later, Ewan says to the whole group, hey, do you guys want to see what's in my pocket? And I was like, uh, reluctantly said, sure. So then Ewan sticks his hand in his pocket and he brings both hands up to his face. And when he takes his hands away, he is wearing a fake mustache. (laughs) I'm telling you, kindergartners are the best. And it was quite a moment. So I asked Ewan, Ewan, can I take your picture? And naturally, he struck this pose. (laughs) Ah. Obviously, it was not hard to fall in love with Ewan, and I did pretty quickly. Uh, But fast forward just a couple of weeks, and I got hired to work for the church, but at a different campus, which meant I would not get to be the small group leader for this group of kindergartners anymore. And I will never forget the day that I told my little small group, because when I did, Ewan burst into tears, and I was shocked and I was humbled by his response. I had no idea the impact that I was having on this little guy. And I had no idea how much my presence mattered to him. It was Christmas time, so a few days later, I'm out shopping, and I come across these fake red and green Christmas mustaches. And I'm like, oh my gosh, Ewan. So I decide to send these in the mail to Ewan, with just a little note that said, buddy, I'm going to miss you, but we will always be friends. And when he received that package, he called and he left me a voicemail and I still have it. And I want you to hear it. Hi, Haley, it's me. Thank you for this message. I felt alone already and I sent you a picture. Call me later. Oh, it just like gets me every time. To pay attention, to respect, to honor, to show up and be present in the life of a child is to welcome a child. And when you welcome a child, you welcome Jesus. I later found out that Ewan's family had been going through a really, really rough time with lots of change and transition. And being a consistent presence for him and giving him a place to belong had far more importance than I ever anticipated or even understood. I found that out when four years later, I was working uh, at that church, the new church, and a third grader showed up one Sunday morning, and it was Ewan. 
And I said to him, I don't know if you remember me, but I was your small group leader when you were in kindergarten. And he said, I do. You were the one that sent me those mustaches. And later, that's when his mom shared about the importance of my presence and the consistency of my presence in that time that felt pretty shaky to you. And I hadn't done anything extravagant. Honestly, I was showing up on Sunday mornings just to lead and love a couple of kindergartners, showing up to give them a place to belong, giving them my presence. And when I stepped into that kingdom way of living, the impact and impression was far greater and lasting than I anticipated. The power of presence doesn't just matter for kids up until the age of eight. Between the ages of 11 and 14, we know that teens and tweens for the very first time are looking to outside places. They're looking to define themselves outside of their family unit for the first time. So they're looking to these outside places to help them find their space in community and in the world. They're looking for someone or something other than their parents, other than mom and dad, to affirm their identity, their worth, and their belonging. And this generation has access to outside influences in a much greater way than ever before. It is literally at their fingertips. So our student team here has decided they're gonna do everything they can to be that outside influence that shapes this next generation and reaffirms their identity and belonging and helps them to understand that they too have a place in the kingdom of heaven. Students need trusted adults in addition to their parents who will show up to be present with them and prioritize creating a safe place as they discover Jesus and a faith of their own. Reggie Joyner, the CEO and founder of Orange, says it this way, if you want to influence what kids and students believe about God, themselves, and the rest of the world, give them a place to belong. That's our role, to provide a place where there's always room at the table for a kid or teenager, to create a space where they know they belong, because most kids need a place to belong before they can ever believe or keep believing. As Jesus followers, we get to be the first ones to raise our hand and say we are willing to welcome the next generation, a group that sometimes is overlooked or considered to be a nuisance. We get to raise our hand and be the first to prioritize giving them our presence and giving them a place to belong so that a firm foundation of faith and identity and worth and purpose is formed. And when we do, we will also welcome and love Jesus. Here's one more thing that I want us to consider in this passage. It's in verse 3. Jesus says, Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I want to be clear that Jesus is not giving a formula, a way to get into heaven here. We know that from his teaching that salvation comes not through any effort or achievement of our own, but it comes through Jesus, his sacrifice, his grace for us alone. So then what is he saying? If he's not talking about a destination or getting to some place, perhaps he's referring to an everyday sort of living. Maybe he's referring to this kingdom of heaven living. 
And in order for us to fully participate in the kingdom of heaven, in what God is doing in this world, it requires a shift within us. It requires us to become like little children. Because there's something about a child that enables them to more easily access and engage in the kingdom of heaven. So if we were to do this, what would it feel like to fully participate in the kingdom of heaven in life as God has designed it? Would it be more full of wonder? When did you first begin to lose your sense of wonder? Would it be more imaginative and creative, more playful and fun? Would you have more curiosity? Would you be more trusting and less skeptical? Would you find it easier to love and accept without condition? Would you feel less like you have to measure up and more confident to just be you? So how can we become more like little children and begin to find a sense of these things again? I want you to consider, who are you choosing to surround yourself with? What inspiring spaces are you walking into? How are you engaging in life? Where are you placing your focus, your time, and your energy? Jesus is saying, watch and pay attention to the little children, or you'll miss out on the small, everyday things. What is it that we learned from Ewan? What was it that captured his heart and attention? It was presence and play. If we let them, kids will turn our perspective to see the kingdom of heaven more fully, and they will open our eyes to experience the love of God more fully. I want you to hear how my friend Sarah Denny experienced this. So I grew up in Boulder. I grew up in the Methodist Church. I was very involved in Sunday school and in youth programs. Um, but when I went to college, I went to college down south, down at Auburn. Um, I really wanted to be involved in something, but everything seemed too big. Everything seemed too loud and not very personal. And I was so used to smaller, smaller churches, very traditional, and I just didn't feel like I could find a fit. So my faith kind of took a back burner and it was more personal. My husband and I got married at 23 in the South, a little young, and we both had had very traditional backgrounds in Christianity. And we both wanted to find our faith together in a marriage. And we moved to Minnesota, we were up in Minneapolis, and we tried different churches, but we just could not find a place that we could call our own and, and call home. Um, then the pandemic hit, and I had the opportunity to come back home and come back to Colorado for my job. It was May 2021, we had been driving back and forth past here multiple times, and um, a very good friend of my mother's and of mine, Mary Winhausen, um, invited us to come to Ascent. And that first sermon just hit my husband and I like a pound of rocks, and it hit us in different ways. And it was for the first time in our marriage of, at that time, almost four years, that we both looked at each other and said, okay, cool, we, we, can, find our, we can find our place here. The next thing I wanted to do is try and pour back. So we went to one of the founders meetings and I learned about the children's program and I found my niche in K through one and it has been the best thing for me because I kind of reestablished my faith. 
You see little kids fall in love with Jesus, you fall in love with Jesus. And it's just the coolest thing um, I've ever been a part of. I am a new mother. Um, my daughter, Nora Ann, was born in November. And it was so cool that she was born during that time period because I got to view Christmas differently than I have ever been able to view Christmas. I had a newborn baby and I got to share the Christmas story with her, one month old, and I got to kind of feel like Mary a little bit. Having this newborn baby crying and feeding and all of that stuff, and that's, Christ came as a baby. Christ came as an innocent child who had to feed and sleep and there weren't diapers back then, but had to, you know, use the restroom and all that stuff. And it was the coolest experience because it was such a reminder of the fact that Christ came to us as a child and that he loves the children. And so you can also invest in a different child and you get to see their faith grow. And how beautiful is that? Because Christ came as a child and he loves children. And if you're investing in another child's faith, you're getting that investment back tenfold, I promise you. I'm Sarah Denny, and I love serving with Ascent Kids. We're so excited to have Sarah back in our K-1 room after maternity leave. Um, she said in there, when you see a little child fall in love with Jesus, you fall in love with Jesus. If we let them, kids will help us see and understand the kingdom of God more clearly. In the kingdom of heaven, greatness is in welcoming a child because how we treat the least of these is directly connected to how we treat and love Christ. An Emmy or any other accolade is a great mark of success and it will likely bring you praise and honor for a moment. But in the end, it won't bring the significance you long for. As Sebastian says, it's just a piece of furniture. But maybe it's also an invitation to keep dreaming, to keep imagining, to keep creating, not to make yourself great, but to participate fully in God's full picture of greatness. That desire for greatness that is embedded deep within you, which is God-given, will only be satisfied when you shift away from elevating your own name. So would you let this Emmy and would you let Ewan be your invitation to participate in wonder, creativity, and play? Imagine if we did that ascent. Imagine if we changed our definition of greatness and collectively we offered presence, affirmation, and belonging to the next generation, not just inside of these walls, but outside of them too. We would be creating spaces for kids to belong as little league coaches, as math tutors, reading buddies in local schools, as foster parents, as one-on-one -on -one mentors, with places like the Boys and Girls Club, or as a court-appointed special advocate for children who are victims of neglect and abuse. The list goes on and on, and the opportunity to engage in welcoming a child, to wonder, to create, 
and to participate in the kingdom of heaven, it awaits us. And if we took Jesus at his word and welcomed the little children, you and I would be participating in bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. Because when we welcome little children, we welcome Jesus. And when we are for the next generation, we are for the good of our city. Imagine the legacy that would outlast us. Today, when you leave and you walk outside of this auditorium, you're going to receive a fake mustache. (laughs) Because I want you to find your sense of wonder, to tap into that. I want you to remember God's full picture of greatness and the power of presence in the life of a child. And I pray it will serve as a reminder and it will compel you to take a step now in engaging and participating in the kingdom of heaven because what you choose to do now has a profound impact on the future. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for giving us a picture of what your kingdom is really like. Thank you for being patient and grace-filled with us when we get it wrong. Jesus, I pray that you would help awaken that sense of wonder within us. Would you, Jesus, help us to see the little children, to see the little, the least, and the marginalized, to shift our gaze away from making our own names great, and instead participate in your kingdom. Give our time, our energy, our resources to the small and seemingly insignificant. God, would you make us more like you and would you use us to shine for your glory? We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.